Today on Backroom Politics, the aftermath and follow-through of the Boston bombing massacre. Did law enforcement really call it right, and did they lose him? We'll go over the details as we know it. Also, we're going to be discussing immigration with Cato Institute's expert, Alex Nuaste. He'll be joining us in the 4.30 hour. We're also going to be talking gun control. How did the gun control bill fail? We'll go over our ideas. That and tell me a story today on Backroom Politics. Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., this is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell. Table you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Live on Blog Talk Radio, joining me as they do every Tuesday. He is, to my left, he is the former eight-term member of Congress, representing Washington's 2nd Congressional District. He is Congressman Al Swift. Hi, Al. How are you? I am just great today. Good, good. And to my 11 o'clock, as he is every Tuesday, he is the former floor chief for then-Congressman Gerald R. Ford. He is the former vice president of government affairs for the National Broadcasting Corporation. He is the Honorable Bob Hines. Hello, Bob. Hello, Justin. Glad to be here today. Uh, good to have you. To my 12 o'clock, as he is every Tuesday, he is the former Undersecretary of Commerce who served under last count four presidents. He's a very distinguished and very relaxed fellow at the Stimson Center. He is the Honorable Alan Moore. Hi, Alan. Hello, Justin. And to my right, he is the former Executive Director of the Democratic Party of the great state of Maryland. He is longtime Washington Insider Carl Tubin. Hello, Carl. Hello, Justin. It's good to be back. Good to have you back. And joining us from New Orleans, she is the former House Counsel for the Committee on Homeland Security, former General Counsel of the Maritime Administration. She's Obama appointee, the Honorable Denise Krebs. Hello, Denise. Oh, wait a minute. we got to put Denise on. Hi. Hi, Denise. Hey, Justin. How are you doing? Good. How are things in New Orleans? Nice and muggy. Yeah, just like New Orleans. Hey, lots to talk about. we got a full show today. Uh, joining us uh, in our 4.30 hour is Alex Noroste, he is the immigration expert from the Cato Center. We're going to talk a little immigration bill happenings. But first, we want to talk about what happened last week in Boston. As you recall, we were broadcasting the day after uh, the horrific events happening at the end of the Boston Marathon last Monday. And since that's happened, we have seen something that in my 42 years on this planet, uh, in my years in emergency management, public safety, and in the military, I've never seen happen before. We've literally seen the lockdown of an entire major urban area as the two suspects went on the run, 
starting late Thursday night and all day Friday. Uh, one suspect, the older brother, was uh, was killed on scene after a gunfight with authorities in Watertown, Massachusetts. The younger brother is now in federal custody. He has now been charged federally with use of a mass, a weapon of mass destruction. Uh, he is going to be charged civilly under the federal system. I would believe that the Commonwealth of Massachusetts probably is going to want to swing him, him as well for a least of all murder. But the events that happened last Thursday night into Friday were just something that I've never seen, and I don't think anybody at this table has ever seen. Congressman, I'm going to start with you. In your years in broadcasting, your years in Congress, have you ever seen anything like what what happened uh, on Friday in in Watertown, Connecticut, or Watertown, Massachusetts? The entire lockdown of almost a million people. No, I have seen some pretty amazing things uh, from time to time, as have uh, us all. Uh, but that is uh, unique. And impressive, I might add. Bob Hines, you know, we're talking about a scene where, you know, the governor of Massachusetts, the mayor of Boston, law enforcement authorities from just about every jurisdiction within 150 miles of Boston are involved in what has to be one of the largest manhunts in this country's history. When you saw the scenes of armored carriers with tactical law enforcement and and Humvees from the National Guard rolling through the streets of Watertown, Massachusetts, and even Boston. What's going through your mind when you see that? Well, the first thing that I would say is what I thought the citizens of the area were absolutely marvelous. They did stay inside. Nobody was running around outside, you know, trying to see what was going on and carrying on. It was just, it was an absolutely... You saw the streets, you saw the authorities, you saw the armored vehicles, whatnot, but you didn't see any citizens running around. And I was just absolutely stunned by the way that the, the entire Boston metropolitan area cooperated so fully and completely with the with the police officers. But but when Alan Moore, when when you look at the events leading up to the lockdown of basically the western half of Boston. Uh, you're talking Boston, Cambridge, Alton, uh, parts of the western part of the uh, central city. You know, that is unprecedented. It, it, it screams that, you know, Stafford Act, they're pushing the envelope on Stafford Act, they're pushing the envelope on Posse Comitatus, and a lot of people are now complaining about that. Is there a lot of armchair quarterbacking that's going to happen as a result of this? Well, there always is, uh, and uh, I'm maybe the only person at the table who found it really strange. Um, I mean, it was, it was, it was obviously uh, a product of great caution, but at the same time that they're pretty sure that one guy's, well, they know one guy's dead, and they identified him pretty early on. That was Tamarine Sarnand. They had very good reason to believe that his younger brother, 19-year-old Jahar, was somewhere in the town of Watertown, that they shut down all of Boston five, six miles away. It just seemed like, I mean, there's a lot of caution here, but there's a long distance and a lot of people. And so I found it 
even as I was watching it, both fascinating but really odd, and I've got plenty of friends who live in the Boston area, and there were a lot of... you think it was overkill? I do. You do? Uh, I do, absolutely. Because we thought there were two guys. We We knew one was dead, and the other one was on foot in Watertown. So for them to shut down Boston five miles away, six miles away, struck me as... A huge stretch. Now, I'm not trying to second guess. They got the guys. Now, if you want to second guess, then you can say, gee, come 6 o'clock at night, we haven't found the guy. Uh, let's, let's, let's lift the order, although we know he's still out here. We think he's still out here. We all, a lot of people at some point are going to say, how did they decide on what the perimeter was in which they were going to go house to house? Because he was... A couple of blocks blocks outside of that, hiding in a, in a in the back of a boat. They've got thousands of guys who are rooting people out of their homes at gunpoint with their hands over their head, and there were many incidents of that type. And I again, you gotta you don't have a lot of time. It's like, folks, we're gonna come in, hands over your head, come out. I'm very sympathetic. To, to to what the risks were and what the police were doing. But I think that in retrospect, if people are trying to learn from this in the future, if you're pretty damn sure you know where the guys are, more or less, you don't have to shut down a major city five miles away, and you may want to expand the perimeter in which you look. Well, let's go back and look at the facts, though. I mean, you know, you know there is going to be armchair quarterback, and, and I want this to be a debate as well. I but believe in looking at the facts. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, when, no. when, when we look at the facts, you're talking about two people who were who had already bombed and killed three people, had access to high explosives, were out causing damage and loss of life. At around 10.30 on Thursday night last week, these two go and kill in cold blood an officer of the MIT Police Department, shot him in the head, cold, cold blood. They then carjack a individual. And now uh, several sources, including one that I've talked to, who is familiar with the case, say that the reason why he wasn't killed is because he is not a American. He's not an American national. He's a, a foreign national studying in Cambridge. So you've got a carjacking in pursuit of these folks. They go out and they start throwing high explosive bombs at the pursuit officers. At which time they are locked down in Watertown. When you have all of that lined up, they've already killed a police officer, they've injured an MBTA officer, and they've literally thrown bombs on top of that now that we're finding that they had IEDs strewn all around the metropolitan Boston area. Does that not seem logical that you might want to, for the protection of life and public safety, lock down that area? Does that seem excessive, Carl Tuvin? No, I don't. You know, there's two ways to look at it. Number one, I don't think it wasn't excessive. Uh, the older brother was was killed, so you might say, well, the younger brother was, you know, kind of following the older brother, possibly. So therefore, he's not as uh, uh, he's not as serious uh, as the as the older brother was. On the other hand, they didn't know at the time whether there might be other people involved, 
in other parts of the city. Correct. I mean, they, they actually stopped an Amtrak train that had left Boston Back Bay Station, and they stopped in, in uh, South Norwalk, Connecticut, thinking that there was a third suspect. They also locked down, uh, talking about getting close to home, they locked down uh, the University of Massachusetts at Dartmouth for 24 hours. They found explosives in the dorm room of the younger Zarnaev. And, you know, this covered the, almost the entire eastern half of the state of Massachusetts. Congressman Al. I think we got two things here, and it's a matter of when you should pay attention to each one. Uh, Alan made a uh, one, one of the best liberal speeches that I have heard in a long time. About, Which is odd for Alan. I, I thought so. But he made a lot of sense. The, the fact that the... <laughs> well, facts... He made a lot of sense. If you analyze this going back, I what, what I said at the beginning was that the lockdown was impressive. It happened quickly, and it didn't take into consideration all of these things that Alan raised, all of which should be taken into consideration of in, in re- reviewing what was done and planning for the future. Uh, but uh, I, I think that uh, so often we get liberals on one side who say, well, the police were too tough, and conservatives on the other side saying they weren't tough enough. And the fact is both might be true depending on where in time you put the specific actions. And I think that's what we've got here. But, Denise, next question is to you. You, you. you sat on the Homeland Security uh, Committee. Uh, as as general counsel to then Chairman Betty Thompson, uh, and you've been around public safety for a long time. Uh, Denise, what are your thoughts? Did this seem excessive? Justin, I, I don't want to play Goldilocks. I have to agree with Congressman now. I mean, there are going to be a lot of lessons learned out of this, and what's going to probably happen is that folks are going to talk to the Boston officials and say, how did you come up with the decisions you came up with, and how do we morph those for future acts? I mean, this has never happened in the United States. The closest I can think of is the Oklahoma City bombing, but that was a finite event. We had two gentlemen on the run, and nobody knew what was going on. So lots of lessons learned, but do I think it was excessive? No. I, I think it was actually spot on for what was needed. But uh, Carl Tubin, you had a comment. The, the comment I wanted to make was the question you had at first. And there have been times when cities have been uh, shut down. Uh, in Baltimore in 1967, after the riots, there was a curfew for two or three nights in a row where the total city was, was shut down. No one was allowed on the streets, and everything was, was quiet. And, there, and that happened, I think, in New York. It might have happened in, in Detroit. It, it, well, it happened in Miami after yeah. after the uh, riots there in the late 70s. But, but, the, but the reality still, Bob Hines, when you look at this, is you're talking about utilizing the law enforcement powers to its fullest extent, ordering people to stay inside. Uh, does that create more panic than it's worth? Uh, when you are responsible for capturing people who have these two these two young men who had set off the bombs and killed some people and injured hundreds, at least 150, I guess it is. Um, it seems to me that most of the time 
you should not you should not you should err on the on the side of doing everything you possibly believe you need to do rather than holding back i think it's more important to do that than it is to try to fine tune things you can look at it after the after the fact and say it would go too far or not far enough whatever but it's far better i think to to use all your resources at hand as you see you've got them rather than hold something back. Congressman now. And I think we should remember that, that early on there was a, a person who appeared to be of Arab descent, maybe he was, I can't recall, uh, and he was thought to have uh, done something to, to make him suspicious, and he was uh, taken into custody, he was examined thoroughly, and within, I believe, 24 hours, he was freed and major news releases went out that this guy had nothing to do with it. So it's not as though the mindset of the police was to lock everybody up. Uh, it was it was different than that. Carl Tuman. Yeah, the, the, other, the other thing that we, we all realize is with all the armaments and all the, the, the uh, uh, carriers and all that they had there and people running into houses fully, fully uh, uh, dressed and, and all that, uh, Suppose somebody had run out of a house and people had been standing around and shots had been fired. They easily could have killed a citizen in that situation. So I think that's another. Or somebody could have gotten run over by the trucks running back and forth. But, but Denise, when, when, or I'm sorry, Alan Moore, you had a comment response uh, to that. No, no, no. What was going on in Watertown was one thing. There were a few, a couple of thousand personnel, hundreds of vehicles. In Watertown, Watertown clearly needed to be shut down, and the so-called the the twenty-block area, which I guess is four blocks by five blocks, in which they were focusing on going house to house, wasn't large enough. Watertown is one thing, but downtown Boston, five miles away, is a different thing in my in, in, in my way of thinking. And if it's not why the hell did they wait until until Thursday night and Friday morning to shut it down? If they were worried that, and they knew there were bombers out there and they didn't know how many, maybe you tell people to stay in place from the beginning. But once you've, once you've identified two guys, they're on the run, and they're in this town of Watertown, and one's dead, and the other one you, you, you know is on foot, you don't necessarily have to go five, eight. 10, 12, 15, 50, 100 miles, um, you have a high level of confidence. I'm not, I mean, believe me, these guys are courageous guys. They got them, thank God they got them in a day. Um, and because imagine if we were still in a, in a stay-in-place uh, mindset uh, in Boston. So anyway, I, I just, I, there, there will be a lot to learn. It was, it, it will we'll probably find out who made the decision? Who recommended the decision? You know, there's some politics involved here, and nobody, but nobody, wants to be to be accused of not having done enough if something happened. But at some point, you have to decide. We, we're we're very confident that this guy is no more than a mile from where uh, where he set out on foot with with several hundred rounds of ammunition aimed at him and others. Well, Denise Crap, you know, there have been some that have said, you know, this. This is something that the National Contingency Plan never would have thought of in a thousand years. But with an all-hazards plan like the National Response Plan, is this something that, that 
went off the reservation and outside the book? No, it, it wasn't outside of the book. I mean, 10 years ago when the Department of Homeland Security was first stood up, they were talking about scenarios like this. I mean, it was more, though, on, on the football, on the baseball, on basketball. We weren't looking at that point on uh, marathons, but when we, we were looking at large uh, sports events. So the question is going to be what work was done in the past 10 years and what work needs to be done to make sure you are looking at an all-hazard approach. Congressman Al, you know the the idea that now these two uh, these two men and now they're looking at uh, possible arrests out of New Bedford, which is on the south uh, south coast of uh, of Massachusetts. Uh, there are other people now. They're starting to look at uh, and foreign involvement. Uh, the two Zarnayev brothers are uh, of Chechen descent. Uh, their families are, are Chechen. The one uncle lives up in Montgomery Village, which is about 10 miles from here in downtown D.C. Um, when we look at the possible events that led up to this, the older brother spent six months inexplicably, unexplicably uh, in Russia about six as early as six months ago. Does, does this now call into question our foreign relations side? Does this now look, has the Chechen fight possibly come to American soil? And if so, do we have to take a closer look at who our true enemies are? We'll know that after uh, we've done a lot more questioning, analysis, and so forth. You see, I don't really disagree with, with Alan. It's just a little matter of timing. Uh, uh, I think everything he said and all the questions he raised need to be answered. And uh, and you just added another one. We need an answer to that. Good question. But uh, I don't think there's any way in the world that any of us can uh, can answer uh, that today. Uh, Alan, Moore, you you spent a lot of time around the international community, and and, and may or may not be familiar with the, the Chechen front. Uh, for those who don't know, uh, Chechen has been a source of you can call it homegrown terrorism or Islamic radicalization on a level that Moscow and the Russian uh, people have had to deal with for several years right now. Uh, when it was first announced that, that these people, that these uh, two Tsarnaev brothers were of Chechen descent, does that immediately in your mind call the idea that we may have another front on the war? Well, I don't know about another front. What it reminds me of <laughs> is the need for us all to be very humble about what we think we know and how much we understand and the kind of... of Almost random events that that can occur. Yes, they are they are they are ethnically Chechen, but they actually grew up in the neighboring area of Dagestan. Oh, I won't call them a country because they were they weren't countries back. They were once part of the the, the Soviet, Soviet Union. Union. And and uh, and Chechnya today is much calmer and tamer than Dagestan is. But these guys haven't lived there for a. 10 or 12 years, uh, the younger brother, Jahar, the one who's still alive and we have so much hope for getting information from, uh, he came here when he was about eight, seven or eight years old. So he's, he's as Americanized as, as, as one can typically be. His brother, obviously, was the major influence. He's the one who... At least the indications are Well, there. there are lots of indications, not only his travel, but people who've talked to him, web, uh, Facebook stuff, everything that his in-laws are aware of. He had become radicalized, 
in in uh, in, in his uh, religious beliefs. Um, and and uh, but I don't think all all this is going to do is make us, if you will, again wary and wondering about uh, adults who who come here uh, from foreign places, and it's. And it's a very unfortunate mindset to have. They came here as refugees. They sought asylum and were granted as refugees asylum. and were granted asylum. And in order to do that, uh, to get asylum in this country, you have to demonstrate to the satisfaction of U.S. government officials that you are at risk of political persecution if you go back to your country. And they they succeeded in doing that. Well, this is not a a major uh, opening and, and 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 flood into America. These are case by case circumstances. Having said that, that's how they got in. They were here over the course of time. This older brother, uh, presumably, ostensibly, became radicalized, maybe in close touch with others, and then. He convinced and persuaded his brother to go along with him. That's not the end of it. There are many, many possible other people involved in this. Uh, Congressman Al. Again, I agree with, uh, with, with Alan, but I'd like to go back to how he began, and he said we, we all should be humble about what we think we know. And I'm, it just occurred to me that you could take all the humility that exists around this table and probably not be able to fill a thimble. <laughs> <laughs> but the rest of it, I agree with. No, oh, well, the, the one thing I, I, I want to point out, though, is, is something that happened during the day on Friday, and, and this goes now to the media's role in all of this. Um, the, uh, the the mayor of Boston, Tony Menina, and uh, and the governor of Massachusetts, Duval Patrick, uh, both commended the media for getting the word out about having the the residents of. Watertown and the surrounding Boston areas to remain in place. However, there's been a lot of criticism, i.e., criticism aimed at CNN. Uh, John King and Francis Town, Townsend Pragos, uh, one a, uh, a lead anchor with CNN in John King, Francis Townen, Townsend, a, uh, a uh, analyst on Homeland Security uh, issues. Both reported that there were arrests made around the 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock hour, and CNN reported it. It caused the White House and the Department of Justice to issue a statement saying that all that media reports that there have been arrests is incorrect. Did the media, I mean, we, we can pick on CNN, but did the media have a role in maybe creating a little bit more fear or providing misinformation in all this as it went down? Congressman Al. It always does. How do you stop that, though? I mean, we're talking about a matter of public safety here, Al. We talk so much about the Second Amendment. With the First Amendment, there is very little you can do about that. You can plead for these professionals, quote-unquote, to be more professional uh, and to to be slower to to insist that they scoop the story, but uh, that doesn't do very much. And that's Bob Hines. Well, that's that's the problem because obviously they did not make up out of thin air. There have been arrests. Someone said it to them. Now, 
police officers, um, uh, a go government officials, who knows? I don't know. But the fact of the matter is, no, no reporter is going to go out there and just decide, well, geez, I have nothing to say when I go in the air. I'll say there's been an arrest. Nobody's going to do that. But the problem is there are, you know, there is misinformation going on. Just think about here. We were talking earlier about that that uh, um, that Muslim-looking individual who was a person of interest at one time. A person of interest at one time. You know that gets involved. That be, now he was cleared, but that gets involved. Maybe he's a personal interest. He's been arrested. I mean, that, maybe that's how it grows. But it's things like that, and it's just it's just the the craziness of the moment where everybody in the world is trying to get more information out and trying to find out what's going on, and they make mistakes. The question I would like to have the answer to is, did they get a second and third support of it? Well, that, did they, did yeah. they that also brings up a good question. But Denise Kreff, I want to go to you. Denise, should there be some sort of culpability in, in broadcasting misinformation like that in a public safety arena like what we were dealing with last Friday? The press is going to say they're never going to be culpable, but I think what you do is say, look, we need you to work with us. And I'm going to go back to what Congressman Elder said. How did you get that information, and did you ask for two or three sources? I mean, that's the responsible thing to do. And if you didn't, then yes, what you end up doing is going to their boss and saying, look, we want to have a close working relationship with you, but if we can't work with you, then we're not going to give you information in the future. And that's how you nip this one in the bud with the press. You say, look, we're not going to give you any access until you start playing the game the way we all need to be playing it together. Alan Moore. John King has uh, has publicly explained what happened, uh, and he's embarrassed about it because he was the guy who was, was saying it. They had two sources, two normally reliable sources. They were both wrong. They went with it, and then they had to they had to come to to realize that they were wrong. Now you, these mistakes get made sometimes in the rush of activity, and as Al pointed out, the desire to be first. And but he he had two sort of they they had two according to them. It's just that and they were independent. They were both wrong. And I'm reminded of the time when when Ronald Reagan was shot. And and a and a reporter for a major network who doesn't need to be named here because he's had to live with it all of his life reported that Jim Brady was dead. Now Jim Brady was shot, shot in the head, went down, uh, and 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 this particular reporter had it on very good authority from somebody inside the president's circle that Brady was dead. Brady was not dead. That guy has had to live with that forever. John King will have to live with this mistake. These guys are 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 in a huge hurry, but they also know their reputation, their jobs, and their their networks. Well, we saw Pete, we saw Pete Williams with NBC, somebody who has been a veteran covering justice affairs in this town for decades. We saw Pete Williams, who obviously had similar sources, tell him the same story, but he was not comfortable reporting it. Is that a matter of experience? You know, we, it's hard to know. You'd have to you'd have to see a transcript, and you'd Con have to know what their relationships were with these guys. Congressman Al, I, I I would think experience would be a big help in a situation like that. Uh, sometimes the the hair on the back of your neck can tell you as much as your sources can, and uh, so. The, but you'd have to ask Pete Wilson, I think. If Pete Williams, Pete Williams. Pete Williams. 
Well, and John King's had 30 years of experience. He's I not agree. Like he's and not I'm not calling into question his professionals. I mean, John yeah. King has done some great reporting. It just seems that he may have jumped the gun, and, and that may have caused a level of comfort that not necessarily was there. But if he has two sources, that's it was it was not unreasonable for him to report it. All right, fair enough. Yeah, we, we're gonna we're we're running a little bit long right now, Carl. We'll we'll, we'll get to you. Uh, we'll get to that later. But uh, we we've got uh, a special guest from the Cato Institute. Uh, Alex Rolante is going to be joining us here in the next half hour, talking the immigration bill. Ironically, uh, Secretary of Homeland Security Janet Napolitano was up on the Hill today defending the immigration bill. We're going to ask Alex about that in our next segment. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. If you want to join the conversation, you can call us toll-free, 877-662-3713. Hey, we'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. You know, for those who listen to Backroom Politics and know about Shelley's Backroom, they think of it as some sort of cigar bar where politicians go to smoke their cigars and drink their martinis. Actually, what you don't know about Shelly's Back Room, Shelly's Back Room has one of the greatest menus in the city. I kid you not. You've got the campfire wings, famous campfire wings, one pound of roasted, not fried, seasoned marinated jumbo chicken rings served with their own special honey mustard sauce. Folks, if you like chicken wings, you've never had the campfire wings. Best wings in the city, bar none, I guarantee. If you don't like it, Al, you can call us up and tell us that you don't like it. Uh, You have daily specials. Come down on a day when they have the Justin Chicken Sandwich. The sandwich named after me. Breaded chicken breast, provolone cheese, thick-cut bacon on a Kaiser roll served with a honey mustard sauce. Folks, it doesn't get more artery-clogging than that, but it is worth it. Come down to Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., the premier sponsor of Backroom Politics.
back here live in Shelley's back room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit of immigration reform bill. Uh, joining us for this segment is uh, Alex, I, I'm going to mess it up again. How do you pronounce your last name? Narasta. Narasta. Alex Narasta from the Cato Institute Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. He's their immigration expert. Sitting in on this one also is our international affairs expert, Dr. Ralph Wenny. Hi, Ralph. Thanks for joining us for this segment. Good to be with everyone. Uh, Alex, let's start with you. Um, Alex, uh, this immigration bill has been a long time coming. The Gang of Eight has been working on this for several weeks, if not months. Uh, There seems to be a compromise in place but we're talking about an over 800-page bill that today Secretary Napolitano was in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee defending the elements of the bill. First of all, how important is this to uh, the immigration laws as they currently stand? Is this reform really necessary? Well, uh, first of all, it's a compromise. It's really a compromise amongst the eight people, the eight senators who wrote it. So everyone else is still trying to figure out what's in there. Now, how much of a rewrite of it, of the current laws, uh, it's pretty substantial. It represents a shift away from a lot of the family-based immigration, which is the mainstay of the current immigration system in the U.S., uh, toward a more employment-based system. So we have a points-based category that is included in the new reform, which is similar to what Canada and Australia have. We have a merit-based approach to it. We have a larger uh, low-skilled guest worker visa program compared to uh, current programs right now. And you have the elimination of a few uh, family-based categories, uh, sort of more distant relatives of American, uh, of uh, green card holders and American citizens in the United States. So it's a pretty good shift. When, I mean, today Secretary Napolitano was quoted in front of judiciary saying that, quote, these are all common sense steps that the majority of Americans support. Are you finding that there are a majority of Americans that support at least the provisions, at least the baseline provisions inside the bill? What do you see? Uh, well, you know, that, that varies on the poll, and these polls are, you know, you get a wide, wide-ranging answers. So a lot of people, most Americans, want more border security. They want something called E-Verify, which is the employment um, uh, verification system on the uh, workplace level. A lot of Americans think it's okay to have more highly skilled workers come into the U.S., but there's a lot of disagreement over things like low-skilled workers. People see the unemployment rate being a bit high, and they think, do we really want to let in more construction workers or more workers like that? So, you know, it's, it runs the, the entire gamut of emotions. When, when, when we talk about the low-skilled workers, I mean, a lot of that baseline argument comes from the idea that Americans aren't ready to pay $42 for a little quart of strawberries, or they're not willing to pay $300 a night at a day's in in Topeka, Kansas, because part of that labor rate is based on low-skilled workers in country, either legally or illegally. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing to keep in mind is that the government has created artificial scarcity with these restrictions in the first place, and that shows up across the market. I mean, I think the market that matters the most right now in the U.S. is uh, not agriculture, but uh, construction and a lot of uh, industries related to construction. If you take a look at housing starts over the U.S. in the last 15 years, that's the main indicator and predictor of the number of cross-border people crossing the border from Mexico and Central and South America. It's people to work in construction and related industries. So one of the main problems with this bill is it sets aside only 15,000 visas per year 
for the construction industry. Now, we're in the middle of a housing recovery, not sure how far that's going to go, but to give you an example of how many jobs are being added, we've had 169,000 jobs added to construction since uh, between September and March of this year. And if that continues for a while longer, then you're going to have uh, the magnet sort of reignite across the border, and we've already had that a bit, uh, the jobs magnet already a bit turn on. Well, Ralph, when he, this, this is a subject that we've seen in, involving a lot of the Asian, the Asian Pacific Rim issues. Uh, you're talking about the high-tech jobs that people from India, now people from China, uh, are now having to contend with. Uh, it, it, are, are the new provisions in the immigration bill something that you see that will involve more investment of people coming here with thought leadership, technology yeah. leadership? I, I think so. Um, you know, I was at a luncheon um, where the head of a, a dot-com company, major dot-com company, said um, he had several interns in their program that were from China and India, and they wanted to hire them right, uh, when they got out of the program. But the problem was... They couldn't get them to uh, to stay in the U.S. They had to have them leave the U.S. and then be hired overseas in Australia or U.K. And he said it was such a shame because these were very talented young people with skills that the United States really needs. Alex, you know, we, we've, we've heard a lot of arguments. I mean, this bill seems to have what some people are calling pathway to citizenship. Uh, some are calling it the yellow brick road to uh, citizenship, however you want to call it. But a lot of uh, members of Congress, uh, several governors have said that all you're doing is creating an influx of more illegal immigration. Is there substance to that argument? Well, I think that depends not on the legalization provisions of the bill, but on the size of the low-skilled guest worker visa program going forward. I think, you know, you guys were talking about being humble in the previous segment. We need to be humble about what it is immigration policy in the United States can actually achieve. Can it actually stop low-skilled immigrants from coming here to gain wages that are three, five, ten times higher than in their home countries? And no, our ability to stop that is not perfect. It's never going to be perfect. We can put 50 divisions on the southwest border and inspect everybody at the airport. We're going to have people overstaying. What we need to recognize is that to end, to fix the illegal immigration problem, we need to fix the legal immigration system and allow more high-skilled workers. The channel would be illegal immigrants into the legal market so we can know who they are, so they can be above board and everything else. Uh, but Alex, you know, especially in light of what happened last week uh, in Boston, a lot of people are saying, look, this is a prime example of what even our legal roads to immigration are having to deal with. You know, those who leave the country, we didn't, we lost track of the older Zarnaev brother who was apparently the radicalized one. Does this bill address some of those concerns, or is this going to be a fight on the Hill? Uh, this is definitely going to be a fight on the Hill, but I think the bill does go part of the way in addressing those concerns. I mean, one of the big problems with the immigration system now is it is obsessed with things like the wages that tomato pickers and computer programmers are being paid, where they're working, the, t uh, the zip codes, everything else. I think that there should be a total refocusing to 100% focus on security, crime, health concerns, and things like this. And one thing to keep in mind is there's fewer than 1,000 Chechen immigrants right now in the United States, even ones who come in on refugees, and that's because of ties to issues like this. So I think they need to refocus the immigration system entirely to be security-minded. Uh, Bob Hines, you had a question. I do. I, I have a question for Alex. Um, a, lot of the, a lot of the support, I think, on the bill eventually is going to hang on the security structure 
that is going to be set up. And uh, do you think what they're, what the bill has is now, do you think it's reasonable? Do you think it can work? It sounds to me like there's, there's a lot of uh, requirements that may be difficult to reach and difficult to uh, evaluate. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, the, the bill is complicated, to put it mildly. I mean, the immigration system is second in complexity only to the tax code in terms of the ins and the outs and everything like that. And this bill definitely makes portions of it more complicated. But I think it will work better than the current system because you have more, some legal paths open. You, you legalize this black market of people who are here. You bring them above board. You can register them. You can check them out. You can know who's here. And I think that goes a big way towards sort of draining the swamp, as they say in counterinsurgency strategy. You know, we got to know who's here first by excluding all the people who are otherwise just, you know, peaceful, healthy people living here so we can check out the ones focused enforcement on the ones who, you know, mean to do us harm. Denise Krupp, you, you uh, served as uh, general counsel on the Homeland Security Committee in the House. For a compromise bill, as many are calling it here in Washington, uh, it seems like the bill, even though it's a quote-unquote compromise, is about to get a bigger fight on the Hill, uh, fights between committees, Homeland Security and Judiciary, both Senate and House. What's your take on this? Well, just I'd actually add another layer, and it would be what deals were cut with the gun legislation that they tried to push, and if people were told, don't vote on this, but vote on immigration, and if it wasn't vote on immigration, how do you vote on the budget? So this is a bigger picture that people need to look at is how are people swapping votes? And so in addition to the fighting, we've talked about that, of making sure that you can get out of committee and get out on the House floor and get on the Senate floor. What else is happening as part of this? So I would really you know, tell folks, look at the bigger picture and what else is going on. Well, Alex, I mean, Denise brings up a very good point. I mean, we talk, we're talking about the failure of the gun control bill, which was supposedly a compromise. We're talking about a budget compromise that still eludes Congress. And the first one up that looks like it's going to get to play in both houses is going to be the immigration bill. Is there really and dealing going around regarding the immigration bill? And are we going to see the immigration bill get scaled down a little bit as a result? Yeah, I mean, without a doubt, there's really and dealing. I mean, you had a backroom deal, I mean, backroom writing of this bill with staff from eight different senators' offices over a long period of time behind closed doors and secretive. So, yeah, there's going to be a lot of wheeling and dealing coming out. There's going to be a lot of amendments introduced about the guest worker visa program, about E-Verify, about everything in this bill is up for debate right now and will, be, and will continue to be. But it's even beyond Capitol Hill. I mean, this is stuff that involves the unions, Chamber of Commerce, and uh, those are some of the big players off the hill. Which, which, leads, which, which leads to a good question is, you know, we, we've seen strange bedfellows in the AFL-CIO uh, and, and the U.S. Chamber. Explain that and how that deal came about for them to agree to the Gang of Eight. Well, it's, it's remarkable in some ways because the AFL-CIO has historically been very much – the sticking point is guest workers. Okay, that's the sticking point between the chamber and the AFL-CIO. It's future workers coming into the United States. They, unions have always been opposed to that. They've been opposed to it since the 1800s. They've been opposed to workers, and they are today. So it's a major sort of compromise on the union's part that they agree to any guest worker visas. Uh, it'll be a maximum of 200000 for lower-skilled workers in five years in this, if this bill passes. But um, the, the point of view from the business side is that still is not going to be enough to channel would-be illegal immigrants into the legal market. As, but, but it's remarkable that unions agreed on principle, at least, that there should be guest workers. 
When, when we talk about the, the illegal market, we, we also have to bring up the idea of, of border enforcement and how the U.S. government secures our borders to illegal immigration. Does this bill address that in some way, some form? Yeah, it addresses it in a lot of ways. I mean, they increase the number of Border Patrol agents by 3,500. They create an exit and entry system. So when you leave the country, you're checked. I mean, one thing to remember is between 40 and 50 percent of illegal immigrants who entered the country did so legally and overstayed a visa. And that's what the entry-exit system is supposed to do, to make sure that if they come in legally, then we can check to make sure that they actually left. Well, we're, we're, we're talking about programs, though, I mean, that, that have been almost in place for since 9-11. E-Verify has been in place since, uh, since 2003. Uh, SBI, the Secure Border Initiative coming out of DHS, has been in place for a long time. A lot of these programs have either similar or duplicative components to it. What makes this different? What, make, what makes this make a better E-Verify? What makes this create a better, more secure border? Well, I don't think anything about it makes it a better E-Verify system. I mean, E-Verify is still filled with all the flaws that was uh, filled with before, including inaccuracy rates, failing to capture a majority of illegal immigrants run through the system, 1% of legal workers flagged as illegal. So that's a huge pain in the behind for a lot of American workers. Uh, it doubles fencing in a lot of places. I mean, the main thing that this bill does for border security and I hate to keep coming back to this, but it creates a lawful pathway for some unauthorized immigrants to come in legally more cheaply. I mean, that's the sort of thing that a lot of people don't recognize, is if you want better border security, you got to drive off the illegal flow into the legal market. Congressman Al, you had a question. <clears throat> From the way you describe it, this is really now focused on what you'd call regular issues, appropriate issues about what happens as you change this policy. But we've noted before on this program that this country has always resisted immigration. They've resisted the Irish. They've resisted European and so forth and so on. Is there, as you work with these people, do you find that there is still some motivation because these people are brown and speak a different language? Is there still some bigotry behind some of these arguments? It's hard for me to look into the hearts of my opponents and discern exactly what is motivating them. Um, I have no doubt that some of them are motivated by issues that you state, uh, you know, of racism or, or ethnocentrism. Uh, that's some of them. But I think it's um, broader than that. I think, you know, humans are tribal people by nature. And our tribe, you know, Americans, we have uh, people coming in from other tribes. And I think that we would see a similar level of hostility today if they were Irish and they had funny accents, or if they were from, you know, uh, some other, or Italy, or some other place. So I really don't think most of it is animated by racial, uh, racism or anything like that, but the vast majority is just by, these are foreigners, and they're coming in here. And, you know, we see the same thing when it comes to trade. I mean, we we hear, you know, if, if a job gets shipped to another state, people don't complain about those people in Ohio or Virginia or somewhere taking our jobs. But all of a sudden, when it goes uh, one step across the border to Canada or Mexico or, to, or, or China, all of a sudden, the whole panoply of uh, our tribe versus their tribe sort of gets so the, to the front. So the very human us versus them thing is, is to play here. To, right. to yeah, and I don't want to say racism because there's so much more to it than that. You know, it's, it's, we could all look the same and speak the same language. Yeah, and I, I like the us versus them because yeah. uh, that, that covers more territory yeah. than racism. Yeah, Denise Krep, you have a comment or question? 
Did he cry? I'm sorry, Justin. I, I couldn't hear you. What was the question? You no no no. You you had a comment or a question? No, not not on this. I just say you know, stay tuned. Let's see what happens with the votes and uh, let's see how this fits into everybody's agenda. Call two, and you have a question. If this bill passes as is, how many, approximately, how many people would be able to come in to the United States? Workers, high tech, whatever. Well, of uh, of the worker side, it would be. And the math is very complicated here because it depends on how much the economy is growing at a certain rate and whether unemployment is below a certain rate. But at its peak, if it's doing well, it could probably be about half a million workers or so per year, high-skilled and low-skilled, coming in either temporarily or uh, permanently uh, coming in. Alan Moore. And, and one of the things uh, that's, that's interesting is in this, these numbers are not significantly different than the numbers that are that exist today. So it's not like there's a major new influx. But one of the things that happens in order to favor the kinds of workers that that have been so ably described here that we're trying to get in and keep track of is that the, there's a plan, a proposal, as I understand it. Correct me if I'm wrong, to just drop the lottery system that we now have all over the world with uh, country by country, there might be 1,200 from country X and 600 from country Y and 2,400 from country Z. And people literally go to a U.S. consulate, fill out the paperwork, and hope that they win the lottery, literally, so that they get uh, a visa to come to America. And uh, it, it's interesting I, how, how much in demand, how much participation there is in these lotteries. I had a an Ethiopian once who was who was uh, who was doing some caregiving for 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 me and my household, and it turned out that it was a couple and they had come in on the lottery. And I said, "So, from Ethiopia, how many people enter the uh, the lottery every year?" And he said, "Well, let's see. Our population is about 80 million. Eh, 80 million <laughs> enter the lottery. It was like this is the this is." The, the entire country of Ethiopia. Precisely. I mean, that was his point. It was like everybody I know enters the lottery. It's become a monster on the one hand. On the other hand, it's really fascinating what a beacon of hope it represents. Uh, it, it, maybe it's time for it to go, and I think that this, the swap that's being proposed um, is probably a good one, but it sort of saddens me to see this, uh, this opportunity that meant so much to so many people. And to which I think that there's a lot of evidence the U.S. has been the gainer. Alex, what say you? Yeah, so the diversity visa that he's talking about is 50,000 a year. And last year, I believe it was uh, just shy of 15 million people applied for it for 50,000 slots. Now, and and this sort of, uh, and it has been in this bill uh, demolished and folded into a merit based, employment based immigration system. So the net numbers are basically the same. It's just that there's a refocus. And, you know, it really shows how we've gone so far from the Ellis Island model of immigration that we, you know, our, many of our ancestors came here on to the system where instead of, you know, my ancestors were low-skilled in the 19th century. All of our ancestors were. There really is no way for them to come here lawfully on this system. The diversity visa was sort of one of the last ways to do it. It was a shot in the dark, a random chance, and that is uh, being demolished by this. Uh, Ralph Woody. Alex, I was going to ask you. Um, uh, this new immigration bill, uh, what kind of effect or impact would it have on the EB-5 uh, 
program here in the in the U.S. So yeah, so it does not eliminate the so the EB-5 program is a green card for entrepreneurs. They have to come in with a million dollars or five hundred thousand if it's a blighted area, and they have to start a business and employ like ten people over the course of a couple of years. Um, basically, this streamlines it a little bit, um, makes it a little bit easier to get loosen some of the barriers. I mean, it, it's sort of this common sense thing that everybody agrees should be, you know, done a little bit better. So it doesn't get rid of it. Alan Moore, uh, bringing bringing up that proposal, uh, that issue is 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 uh, of all all things going to play a role in the gubernatorial race in Virginia. The, right. Terry McAuliffe, uh, the Democratic likely uh, likely candidate for for governor, it turns out has been involved in a in a startup company. Uh, called Green Tech, I think, uh, that might have been placed in Virginia, ended up in Mississippi. That's controversial. But it turns out that one of the ways they were funding this this company was to go seek relatively high net worth individuals from other countries who had $500,000. They were going to put it in a in a poorer area. So the, the, the notion was, give me your $500,000. We'll invest it in this company the president likes this company. This friend of the president is running this company. It's a great investment. You have a great chance to to get your money out of it. Oh, and you get a visa. So it's kind of a visa for sale enterprise done on an organized, coordinated basis. We'll be learning a lot more about that in Virginia because uh, <laughs> because, because of the uh, because the, the the candidate for governor uh, apparently was engaged in this particular thing. Ralph Winnie. Interestingly enough, some in some countries like in China, they they actually have con- consulting firms that will uh, pick and choose people they feel would uh, qualify under the EB-5 program. Carl Tubin. Yeah, the reason why I asked how many people potentially would come in to the country on a yearly basis is that Mayor Bloomberg is very very big on immigration, and he keeps talking about every every time he can. Get all these people in, get them legalized, they'll pay Social Security, they'll pay taxes, and it'll be a big boom. But it doesn't seem that with these numbers, uh, that would make uh, a big dent. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the, I mean, the numbers are very similar to what we have now. The difference is there's more of a focus on high-skilled people. So you have a de-emphasizing of family and diversity. So to give you an example, you have 138,400 visas reallocated from family and diversity into merit-based, into entrepreneurs, and the things like that. So, you know, I agree, 138,400 people out of a population of 310 million isn't a whole lot. It's something that I would like to see the numbers go up substantially um, in the line with historical numbers of what we've accepted in the United States in the past. But, you know, it, it is an improvement. I mean, we can't begrudge that. I'm, as a libertarian, I don't see many improvements in public policy recently. So I'm happy to see some of these in, in at least this area. <laughs> Very good. Um, final question: When when we look at the Gang of Eight and we look at this compromise, we and we're going to be talking about the gun bill here shortly. But we we've seen a compromise that looked like it had bipartisan support. It, it, do you think that this truly is a compromise that will clear both sides of Congress? That is a huge question. One of the main problems with it now on the House side with House Republicans is the guest worker visa program is not big enough. So a lot of House Republicans, you know, they remember 2007 when the guest worker visa program getting kicked out of that reform killed it in 2007. There's a union-backed proposal to get it out, and it passed as an amendment. And so they want to make sure that if there is a legalization, that they at least get something sweetening the pot for the industries that a lot of them care about, like construction, agriculture, etc., that is larger than what we have now. 
So the, the ironic thing is what could hold it back is it's not open enough. Wow, very good. Uh, Alex Ramacha, Cato Institute. Alex, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, we're coming up on the top of the hour. It's happy hour here at Shelly's Retreats. We're going to cut our cigars. We're going to uh, order our drinks for the second hour of Backroom Politics. Stay with us. When we come back, we're going to talk about gun bill, the compromise that really didn't compromise enough. So stay with us. We'll be back in three minutes. This is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. You know, here on Backroom Politics, you hear us order drinks uh, during happy hour, the second hour of Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. But what you don't understand is the quality of the drink that we're getting here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Backroom Politics premier sponsor. Hey, you got Dave Hammerly and the bar crew there at Shelley's Back Room that really know how to pour a drink. Whether it's something simple like my on-air Jack Daniels on the rocks with a splash of water, or whether it's something elaborate like what has to be the best martini in the District of Columbia for Congressman Al Swift. Wine selection, scotch selection that will blow your mind. They've got Highland scotches. They've got Isla Sky scotches blended, single malt, anything you want Port wines to go with that great cigar from the great humidor. Down here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Come on down, have a drink, and make some new friends. Or heck, just come on down and listen to Backroom Politics on Tuesdays.
here live in Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is Back Room Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. Hey, uh, we're going to talk a little gun control bill. Uh, if, with all the things that were happening after last week's bombing tragedy in Boston, uh, what kind of got thrown by the wayside was a vote last week that effectively killed the compromise bill, basically killed Harry Reid's gun control bill with the Manchin-Toomey Amendment, and basically sent it back to the scrap heap. Uh, it was not close. Uh, it, several Republicans that had voted on the cloture vote voted against the bill. Uh, several ranking Democrats, notable Democrats, voted against the bill. Uh, basically what we have is we have square one again in the gun control debate right now. Uh, Bob Hines, I'm going to turn to you. When you look at the gun control bill, we supposedly had uh, Senator Manchin from West Virginia, a Democrat, Senator Toomey from Pennsylvania, a Republican, supposedly getting gun control bill compromised, ready to go. Where did it slip up? Well, you've said it very well. That slipped up. There were never enough votes. That's what it really came down to. There were never enough votes. Now, that, that certainly... I think the Manchin Amendment, the Manchin-Tooney Amendment, got it maybe a few more votes than they had originally, but it didn't get them over the top. And uh, it's just, it's, it's a reality. Uh, there are just an awful lot of senators uh, who, were, uh, who were just not prepared to, uh, to buck the, the NRA, I think. The NRA, right. Alan Moore. Well, you were saying it's dead and on the scrap heap. Uh, I, as I said last week, uh, maybe I'm the only one here who doesn't think that. I don't think it's dead at all. I think Reed pulled it from the floor. Reed switched votes at the end. He can call this back up. He can bring this very same vote on background checks back to the, to the, to the floor on a motion called reconsideration, and they can modify it or, or uh, move forward. There are still people out there who are gettable on background checks, starting, as I said last week, with Tom Coburn, who was the original partner to Manchin on trying to come up with a compromise, and it broke down, but not because Coburn lost his interest. There were just a couple of things he couldn't abide by. Meanwhile, four Democrats are taking an enormous amount of grief not least of all, uh, new Senator uh, Heidi Heitkamp from North Dakota, who has got six years in front of her. The other three, it was thought, have uh, are up in two years. Now, we learned today that Max Baucus, who was, right. who was one of those who said no, is uh, not going to run in, uh, in really? two years. Yes. Really? Yes. That's right. That was breaking news. That was going to be my tell me a story, but thanks, Alan. Well, that was new. I mean, it's out there. Jeez, I want a story, not that something that's all over the news. Um and and uh, Al and I uh, know Max Bach as well. We took a garbage tour, literally a garbage tour of Europe uh, together uh, years true. ago. We visited waste uh, plants all over the continent. Um, and uh, he had a major, major problem in 94 when he voted for an assault weapons ban and had decided never again. But now that he's not running again, Heitkamp has taken all this grief. And then you got then that brings you down to, to two. Um, uh, Mark Pryor and 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 uh, Begich from uh, from Alaska. Meanwhile, there's a handful of Republicans, uh, not just Coburn, but a few others who I think are potentially gettable. So I don't think we're finished on having a gun bill that has a background check provision 
Um, and uh, and then there's there's the, the 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 gun trafficking issue. There's some mental health stuff that was not a focus of major controversy. There were a couple of amendments that got shot down. I don't think it's dead. But the only way it works is if the president does something different than he did before. All he did before was go around the country with a with a backdrop of police to to, to states that were already fully on board and say this isn't about politics. It was one of the most politically directed enterprises that we've seen. And he needs to say, particularly to the Democrats, I have to have you on this. And somebody has to say to those people on his behalf, he needs you on this. And believe me, if if we don't get you on this, there will be consequences. He's not good at that. And he needs to be better if he wants to win this. Carl Tubin. Over the weekend, uh, Vietnam veterans had a board meeting, and Manchin staff came up to talk to us about veterans issues. And, of course, the gun bill came up. And we know that Manchin has been locally on TV saying, this is going to come up again, we're going to get the votes, and we're going to do this thing. Well, the staff was even more verbose in saying he is working this thing, he's going to work it like crazy, and he hopes that, you know, by the by, by the short term, we will be able to vote on this again and it will pass. Now, what comes what, now? What, what's going to happen in the House is, who knows? One of the things that, uh, that you said the president is good at, you know, strong-arming, Nancy Pelosi is. But where does she stand on the legislation? Do you have any idea whether she could support a gun bill as, from her standpoint, as weak as this one is going to be? I would think, just to respond, I don't think she'd have a choice. To she'd have to support it. The question, the president, assuming the president was supporting it and it could get through the Senate, um, I, I think that 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 she would have to support it. The, the real challenge in the House, of course, is whether the Republicans would would come on board or enough, or whether whether the leader Boehner would allow still another example of letting a vote come to the House that that passed with a minority of Republicans and an overwhelming majority of Democrats. Yeah. But I think I, I totally agree with you. This is a far cry from what she would want, or that what the Diane Feinstein wanted, who was such a a proponent of the yeah. assault weapons ban and the limit on, 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 on ammo cartridges, but I think if this was all there was, it would be this is better than nothing. Yeah, and, but, but, but I, I absolutely agree with you that she would she would have to support it if the president pushed it. Joining, uh, will, three, she, will, would she break arms she to do it? Yeah, That's she the work question. Out. Yeah, uh, Alex from the Cato Institute has been gracious enough to stay with us for another segment. Alex, you got a comment on this? Yeah, I do. Uh, part of the problem is, you know, that the thing behind this is, of course, you know, the NRA and the massive numbers of people that they can mobilize, and the people. And I'm a very pro-gun person. I oppose this bill, but part of the issue is we just don't trust that this is the last time or the last sort of. Um, move toward greater gun control. I mean, when we were talking about the assault weapons ban a few months ago, you know, reigniting that, and uh, background checks got thrown into that, it was always, the, the argument was, you know, assault weapons don't kill that many people every year in the United States. The last year, there were 343 deaths from all different types of rifles, um, and so assault rifles were a sub-portion of that. So we, when we said this, the response from the gun control crowd was always, well, this is the first step. And it's like, well, a first step toward what? And then the same people who said that said, oh, well, we want background checks now. So it's like a first step toward what? What's the next thing after this? 
So until we can get sort of, a, or at least the, the, my side behind the scenes, can get a little bit more, I think, reassurances that this is the only thing. I guess what strikes me is, well, I guess what strikes me is, is that you know, it, 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 there seems to be, there seems to be an issue that draws the extremes on both sides. You have the Brady Center, which does a great job on on gun control, but they seem to be to the fringe left of the issue. You look at organizations like the NRA, which bring in the fringe right of the issue. I guess the question is, and Bob Hines, I'll go to you, when you look at organizations like Americans for Responsible Solutions, that's Mark Kelly, Gabby Gifford's organization, uh, they're promoting expanded background checks, sensible legislation. There's an organization out of Michigan uh, called Protect Our Children for Life that are talking about uh, you know, prevention of unauthorized access of guns to children. Practical. They're not. Taking, these are organizations. As as the as the loss of the gun control bill, the vote last week has that taken away some of the stroke of Americans for Sensible uh, uh, Responsible Solutions, Protect Our Children for Life, and given more power to the NRA. I don't think so. I, I think I think Alan is exactly right. Harry Reid pulled the bill. He can bring it back at any time he wants to. And there is there's some evidence to uh, to support what Alan said with respect to some senators, so we'll see. But I don't think that uh, you know. I think the argument about uh, a gun a gun check bill is the first step uh, is so weak for the for the for the obvious reason that it's so damn hard to even if it's this hard if it's this hard to get just a gun check. Think how hard it is to, 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 to prohibit anything else. So I don't find that argument strong at all, but it is a very popular argument. Alan Moore. Uh, I, just, I want to respond to, the, to, to your concern that, that you know, the gun folks think, well, this is step one, and then there will be a step two and a step three and a yeah. step four. Hello. That's how the government works. That's how the process works. And you, nobody today is going to be able to bind themselves or the Congress in the future. The question I think for you guys, though, is are you going to put some of your people, not all of them, but some of the people you support, in, in jeopardy over this particular issue at this point in time so that the people who would be inclined to stand with you to try to head off things in the future are gone. I think that this is what the, the whole question for some of these, these uh, the Democrats is, and 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 there's a there's a group of Republicans. So so it, you're never going to be able to get enough people to say, if we do this, then we're done for the next five, ten, fifteen Congress years. Now. The, the NRA has really written one concept and written it and written, written it well, and that is that this will end up with taking guns. That is the most absurd suggestion I have ever heard. There is no way in the world, if you wanted to, you're going to get that done. And sometimes I get so exasperated with my moderate liberals who simply don't think through an argument. The first thing they should do, and what they should still do, is they should absolutely blow out of the water that 
NRA argument that we're going to say go. We're, we're talking about we're t- we're talking about some serious organizations here, not just the Giffords Kelly movement. You're talking about the Urban Mayors Initiative, led by Mayor Bloomberg, supported by Cory Booker, supported by several urban mayors. Now they they can't get that message through. No, they they no they can't because they haven't tried. Among other things, I mean, I, I would disagree. I would say that urban mayors, Bloomberg himself, put up millions of dollars to support uh, gun checks and, and the legislation in front of us. Al, I mean, I think one of the major stumbling blocks for the uh, for the you know the the people who want more controls and you know uh, this mandatory uh, background checks is that you have groups like the Center Against Gun Violence or the Brady uh, group who have been on the radical fringe who have dominated the conversation for the last 30 years or 25 years about this and we can't and the uh, people who want some reforms that are admittedly mild and mostly sensible uh, can't get beyond a lot of these talking points. I think they need to take a page from the pro-gay marriage campaign which in the last couple years has totally changed their tactics away from everybody hates us to this is pro-family values in order to change their message. Now I personally hope they don't but that is the Thing that they need to get away from. Okay. Congressman Al. Well, exactly. And, and, the, and the idea that these groups, what you've got here is you've got two extremes, and the, both extremes are dominating the conversation, leaving no room for moderates. Now, moderate gun owners? Yes. I have talked to constituents who are NRA members, they're hunters or they're, they're sportsmen of one sort or another, and they say, you know, I just don't agree with the NRA on, on this issue. I, I haven't got any problem with this, uh, you know, reasonable legislation. But do, do they stand up? No. Why? No, they don't stand up and be, be counted. Uh, call to you first. I just don't know who's doing the... The work, the lobbying work uh, on on the Bloomberg people and the other folks, but it seems to me that <clears throat> there wasn't enough pressure put on a lot of senators to get them to to change their thing. Even though there's a ninety some percent in favor of, of the checks, and that ought to be that ought, ought to have been used and knocked into everyone's head, and evidently it wasn't. Yeah, but you're talking about. You're talking about people trying to influence senators, Carl, that, I mean, you look at the money and the influence being wielded by the NRA. I don't see an organization out there that can even come close to pushing and putting pressure on senators. If the NRA comes to me and says, look, we'll kick you out, I take that as, as not as a threat, I take that as a promise, whereas... Another organization, i.e. Urban Mayors, i.e. Americans for Sensible uh, Solutions, those people just don't have that kind of struggle. Yeah, but if you break each state down, if you have in North Dakota and there's there's 85 or 90 percent people who are in favor of it, and you take it to those senators, North Dakota or South Dakota, that's going to mean something to them. Obviously, it doesn't, though, Carl. I don't know if that was done or not. There is nothing harder to motivate than moderates. Moderates (laughs) are are people who sit around there. Tautology. Yeah, it's crazy. So, abortion. I mean, you you can go down the list of issues that we've had, and you've got the extremes doing the argument, setting the debate, and and. uh, and ending up with policies or promoting policies that probably are not agreed to by 
the moderates in our society, both conservative and liberal. Alan Moore. Two, two, two quick comments. One that that I, I've been intrigued right after that vote, before Boston just kind of exploded and took over everything. Um, there were the, there was a lot of use of the word coward and a lot of use of the word liar, um, and I thought, eh, okay, we're gonna we're gonna call them cowards because uh, because they wouldn't, if you will, stand up to the NRA. But I'm thinking. You know, you're not exactly a coward if you stand up to 85 to 90 percent of your constituents either. So I just it just offended me some of you know the the, the resort to name calling on something where I think there's there's a, a lot of interesting opportunity and and potential. The, the other comment I wanted to make though was about 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 Boston and the lockdown. And I'm one and I and I've read and because I, I sensed this when I was watching, I thought I wonder how many of those people locked into their houses in Watertown are thinking. Why in the heck did I give up my gun? Or why don't I have ammunition for my gun? I mean, that's uh, there are people who have an old family gun and they don't have ammunition because they're worried that somehow the two will get together and 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 and, and someone will get hurt. But but uh, sure enough, there's a bump in the northeast in in gun and ammunition purchases again. You know, when when the one thing we've not talked well, Al addressed it is is the moderate issue. And and I and I absolutely agree with with Congressman now. Getting moderates motivated to actually stand up and do something simple, like a letter writing campaign. Now, for full disclosure, I personally am working with a moderate gun control organization that is promoting sensible restrictions on access to minors and firearms, unauthorized access children. to children to children. There's no reason why minors should have unauthorized access to guns, period. They're not calling for go take all the guns. A lot of the members of this organization have guns, and they support the Second Amendment. What I've told them and what I would tell any moderate organization, you know what? One person writes a letter to Congress, it, it goes in a hopper. Ten people write a letter, it sparks some interest. A hundred people, yeah, you'll get it staffed out. A thousand people? will get the members' attention. And that is something we cannot get moderates to do anymore because in their minds, it's being driven by the fringe, the NRA and the pro-gun control folks. That's the biggest problem I see here. Now, the other problem I see here is we have a president that took his tail between in his hat, walked out hat in hand into the Rose Garden and and says, we didn't do it. And has to look every member of the family members from Newtown has to look Gabby Giffords in the eye and said, you know what, I and I'm going to parent, I didn't use the bully pulpit the way I should have. This is a huge blow to the administration, in my opinion. They should have driven this, and they didn't. Bob yeah. Hines, I don't disagree with that. I mean, this president has been amazingly reluctant to do what so many presidents in the past have been. And that is really work the issue. Go to the public, go to the go to Capitol Hill, and tell people what you want and what will happen if you don't give me what I want. And most presidents, whether they be George Bush or our current president, really have influence with the moderates. Yeah, yeah. Well, they always have had. Sure. Alan Moore. It. it um, 
it'll be interesting to see what what happens next because I think there really is uh, an opportunity here. I think that that Harry Reid is probably kicking himself for bringing this up before they have the votes. These votes are not that hard to count on something like this. There are people who say, well, they haven't decided, they haven't decided. And and uh, I think that they thought they had them, but they weren't certain. And uh, they went out there, they I didn't by, have them. I by they, no means going to try and even attempt to defend Harry Reid on anything. <laughs> I'm the last person to do that. However, what I will say is that you have two moderate senators in Manchin and Toomey that I think if you look at the cloiture vote, Cloture, or the cloture vote. I keep saying cloture. i got to get that right. The cloture vote. If you look at the cloture vote, there should have been, with the support of people like Susan Collins, I mean, even Jeff Flake from Arizona vote the cloture vote. Yeah. There should have been enough power wielded, not only by Manchin and Toomey, but the lack of power coming out of the bully pulpit of the White House is just Mind-boggling. Yeah. Well, and remember, remember the, the, the guys who voted that, that group you're talking about who voted for cloture but against uh, expanded background checks, they voted for cloture because because Reed did give them something they have been demanding, which is an open amendment process. What what Reed is taken to doing? We've we've talked about this before in in arguing about the filibuster. The, the reason that the Republicans filibuster everything is because the, Repu- the, the Democrats are bringing up bills and not allowing any amendments. In this case, Reid said, we'll allow multiple amendments. And these guys said, that's what we've been asking for. That's what we want. We'll go on the bill and see where the chips fall and see where the votes are. And so, so it, 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 wasn't a, it, it wasn't a big surprise. Having said that, there are some people, including some on that list, uh, who voted? Who supported cloture on the bill and let us let them go under the bill? Who I think are gettable, but you need to bring them in to be part of I the mean, process. Toomey was representing one person, and that was not enough. I no, I, I would disagree with that, but go ahead. I'll, I I'll want to agree that. with Alan on something. Now you know the rules of the Congress, and maybe particularly in the Senate, are you know they're they're relatively arcane to. 99% of the citizens of the United States, and that's ter- perfectly appropriate. They are arcane and they're difficult. But the fact of the matter is, the majority leader of the Senate has been for several years, at least, and Alan knows better than I do, you know, effect, what, what we call loading up the amendment tree. So only what he, he, he has amendments that's no one else can offer an amendment because the branches are full of his amendments. So he gets what he wants or nothing happens. But, you know, and that, that makes a lot of people unhappy in the Senate. And they well, they should be unhappy. And that's why you had Olympia Snow and Susan Collins joining with all the conservatives yeah. over the last Congress yeah. saying, no, we're not going to go on to this bill. Until you give the Republicans a chance to bring up amendments, we are not going to be your partner in this. What strikes me as odd in that argument is when they voted for cloture, the Republicans in the Senate took the easy way out and said, you know what, we just won't vote on it. They had the opportunity, once it cleared cloture, to put amendments on the floor 
for discussion, debate, and the, and the vote. And they did not do that. They did do that. I, they did so, do that. No. No, they had a whole it, it, host of amendments. Yes, they I, had the, 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 the very controversial that almost passed a concealed carry amendment that would have said if, if you have a concealed carry uh, <laughs> license in your state, you can carry automatic reciprocity. You can carry your gun into any other state that, that has concealed that carry. You have to me, by their rules. But then that strikes me as being something that would have gotten at least the republic, the hard, the even the moderate Republicans. Such as, I mean, Susan Collins came out up front and said, look, I'm going to vote for this, which I think was courageous on her part. You had people like Tom Coburn, who comes from a state that is all about gun, guns and babies, coming out and saying, look, we can strike this deal. It, 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 I don't think... What this group needs is a moderator. Yeah. <laughs> Once in a while, good to wait a minute. This for good radio. Are you, the, are you the moderator or are you a participant? I'm the moderator. Hush your mouth. <laughs> it strikes me. Let's take a vote. Hey! You know what? I want to take moderator's privilege. We're coming up on the break. We're going to talk about this for the first 10 minutes of the next thing. You sound like Harry Reid. You know what? I am totally... I am so... Wow. Really? Wow. Don't even agree with that, Carl. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We're going to continue this little civil debate when we come back here in our final segment. Stay with us. You know, you hear us talk about Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. It's being the place to be. America's premier cigar tavern, place to make new friends or visit old friends, or even have a lively political discussion like we do here on Backroom Politics. But what you may not know, Shelley's is the place for private parties. Shelley's Back Room is available to host events for groups of 10 to 250. From cocktail receptions to sit-down dinners, Shelly's can provide custom menu options to suit your needs and budget. Although Shelly's is a smoke-friendly environment, Shelly's can make accommodations for non-smokers based on the side of your party, but heck, why would you want to? With a cigar menu like they have here, why would you even consider going smoke-free? Event pricing varies based on the time of the day of the week chosen for your event. For more information on private parties at Shelley's Back Room, go to www.shelleysbackroom.com slash private dash party. Shelley's Back Room, the place to be, as Bob likes to say it. It's also a place for private parties.
Hey, we're back here live in Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., after I was just just pig-piled on by my round table. Well, I noticed <laughs> three people that used to be here are gone. I'm, I, I oh, that, oh, yeah, you're darn right. That's what happens when I get... Uh, we're going to continue for a couple minutes talking about this, about the gunboat. And, and, but I, I do want to bring up the, the one thing is, you know, we, we talked a little bit about the lack of the bully pulpit coming out of the White House. I mean... This seems to be a huge hit for the president in his second term. Alan Moore, how big of a hit? I mean, is President Obama now truly a lame, lame duck right now? No, he's not a lame duck. We, he's got he's got most of most of four years left, and most of the next the next two years. What and and he he used his bully pulpit on this, but as I said before. He used it in a very political way to go around the country to, to places like Colorado, uh, places where that, that, that have that have been victimized by by gun violence, and stand in front of a crowd that's basically a friendly crowd. Using the bully pulpit to preach to the choir is not the best use of the bully pulpit, and using the bully pulpit. Is, has lots of forms, and the form that we, I think, are talking about here that this president is not comfortable using is not the public pulpit. It's the quiet pulpit. It's the... It's the... The wheeling the, and dealing pulpit. It's the wheeling and dealing. It's the, the, the sort of velvet glove over the iron fist. It's the letting somebody on his behalf say, uh, Senator Heitkamp... I love the fact that you're here in the United States Senate and for the next six years, and I want you to be my partner, and I want to help you do all sorts of things in, in North Dakota that are important, the boom town of, of, of new oil uh, production. But I'm going to need you from time to time, and sometimes I'm going to need you so much that, well, this is so, he's going to need you because the president can't be the one who says this, but a couple of people inside um, deputized for this purpose. He really needs you here. And if he doesn't get you here, you're on your own. There will be consequences, and you need to know that. It seems like nobody yeah. in the White House watches the West Wing or an American president. Or Lyndon Johnson. Or Lyndon Johnson. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> or, or, or any television show based in Washington. Bill Clinton was a hell of a negotiator. I mean, you know, Absolutely. any any president who is going to succeed, unless he is so lucky to have a Congress that he controls completely, is going to have to negotiate. But he negotiates from the position of owning the bully pulpit, and that's the most powerful place in the world around here. I mean, you know, the public pays attention to what the president talks about. But but, but I I go back to Alan's point is I don't think he used. The back room pulpit, the way he could have. I Not mean, you you look at even even George W. Bush was extremely calculated and extremely successful in using the back room pulpit. You know, you look at I mean, hell, Reagan was a genius at it. Uh, you know, even Carter had some success, as successful would be. I said some. I said some. I'm trying to figure out what that might have been. I don't remember. <laughs> and I was there. But, well, this, this, but this president does not seem to get the idea of, look, you have the loudspeaker. 
you have the power. Why not use it effectively, Congressman Al? Well, I have no idea why. Uh, I tend to agree with you. Uh, if we go back to his one big success, which was health care, uh, I think you probably wouldn't have a lot of people that would argue with you if you said that was Nancy Pelosi's victory. Uh, I, I would agree with that. I, I think it was more Pelosi, Boxer, Feinstein. It was more a congressional victory. Than it was him. Well, that's right. He stood aside in many ways and said, uh, you know, whatever works. We got some. We got a framework. We got some concepts we want. Uh, anything you can get through. The, the real challenge was getting that 60th vote in the Senate. Right. Um, uh, and, uh, and there were a lot of factors Carl, uh, involved in that. Carl Tubin. I think one of the most frustrated people in the White House is the Vice President, because I think if the Vice President were in charge, he would use the bully pulpit a lot more and a lot more effectively than the President does. Well, you would think, you would think that, you know, somebody with the political prowess and experience of uh, Papa Joe Biden, that you would think that if I had to use any surrogate on the Hill to use the velvet glove iron fist rule, I'd send Joe Biden. Is, yep. Am I the only one that thinks that with Carl? Well, I, I, I would agree. I mean, Joe Biden would probably love to spend more time working the Hill than he might do now. I don't know, but you know, let's put it this way. The president is the guy who decides how he is going to try to influence votes, try to draw his party together on following his position, and try to minimize the opposition as much as he can. He's the key. He's not doing it. I don't know why he isn't doing it. I, I guess he just doesn't like the, the hurly-burly of getting down and dirty a little bit. And, and as Alan says, you know, getting in there and saying, I want to help you, but you've got to help me. Yeah. Yeah, and, yeah and, and, and you know, I think that there's a combination here. We, there are sort of two pieces to this, um, and, and, and we're, we're beating up on the president a little bit, which I think he deserves. And we're also beating up a little bit on Harry Reid and those in the Senate who pushed forward before they were ready. What those guys need to do is work in concert so that the Senate knows it's a few votes short. So then it says, okay, are there a couple of other Republicans we can get somehow? What, how, what does Tom Coburn need and and would that would that make the difference? And would he bring a couple of people, unlike Toomey? Um, or it, it, do we need to just get one and then beat up on these Democrats, which is where the president can come to play? Well, they didn't do either one of those things. The president wasn't playing hardball, and Reed and inside the Senate they they were kind of overconfident, and uh, they had 59 votes if they had the the four missing Democrats. They were one vote short. That's it. If they had those four, and man, if you if you can peel off Hyde Kemp and then you peel off uh, Blockus because you, you by then they probably knew he was gonna gonna retire. Then you're down to to two, and then you start talking about all the things you can do for them. Then you're at 59. But the way it was, because there were four Democrats who said no and four Republicans who said yes, it it. It muddied, wow. it muddied the political water that they were, you know, they but, were hoping for. You know, Peggy Noonan uh, this weekend on Meet the Press had a, had a great, great comment about the Senate and how ineffective or effective it can be. Uh, you know, you look back pre-1920s when the Senate was appointed by the state legislature, 
and the special interests that had total control over those appointments and ultimately over the Senate. Post-1920s, when you had an electable Senate, it seems like it's gotten worse rather than it's gotten better. Alan, you've been around the Senate a long time. Is there some is there some truth in that? You know, <laughs> even Alan isn't that old. Well, yeah, I mean, the no, Senate, but Alan is a student of the Senate. The Senate continues to evolve and and continues to change, and the and and, and man evolved quicker. Well, you know, you, you have to you have to adjust with it, and you know, we've been quick in the same sentence is ridiculous. <laughs> It, it, that's certainly true, and uh, you know, and this uh, the role of the filibuster, cloture votes, ground rules for bringing bills up. These are still evolving, and in the case of of this bill, we we got on the bill. Yeah, they, well, had, they had plenty of votes yeah. to take up the bill. Carl, I'll give you the last word on this. Some people would some people would say that you know Harry Reid didn't go far enough on on. Uh, on, on changing the rules at the beginning of the of the session, if he had, there might not have been a 60 vote uh, uh, thing to to pass the bill. Bob Hines, I'm going to give you the last word. All right, Congressman, now you'll have the last word. Bob Hines, you know, let's look back. You know, a couple. If you look back a few decades, you look at people like Lyndon Johnson. You look like people like Bob Taft. You look at people like uh, Everett Dirksen. You look at some leadership that was strong. Senator Russell. Vigorous. Senator B Richard Russell was a hell of a guy. You know, you have had senators who were strong enough to make things happen and get their colleagues to work with them. Uh, you know, I don't, uh, I don't think it's fair to say you had a bunch of pygmies up there, but you don't have the kind of leadership that you used to have individually. And I'm not really quite sure why it is, but, uh, you know, it came long after, uh, you know, they were elected totally, uh, rather than being appointed by these legislators. Alan Moore, one more time. Then. Yeah. Congressman Allen yeah. has the last word. Yeah, Carl is talking about uh, or suggesting that Reed should have, gone, should have pushed harder. Uh, it was Democrats uh, who also have memories and who realized we don't necessarily want to kill off the filibuster. The, the things change. What goes around comes around, and and if they're and, and so they backed off and have a, a a way now to bring these bills up. Um, but I'm thinking that had there been a 51 rule or a 55 rule or something, yeah, a bill would have passed the Senate. And it would have gone nowhere, nowhere in, in the House. I agree. What they need is something that can pass this Senate, and then they got a real running chance at the House. Right. Congressman, our last word. All I wanted to say was that uh, we have been sitting here just beating the hell out of a Democratic president and other Democrats, and <clears throat> I tend to agree with most of it. But. And you said what goes around comes around. We sat through a number of years, starting with Gingrich and continuing through the Tea Party and continuing through the, the Republican leader in the Senate saying our, our only purpose, our primary purpose in this election is to defeat the president. You know, none of those have any direct influence on what we're talking about now, but I think they have indirect influence that the, the Democrats 
are, are, are bruised over more than a decade of abuse by Republicans. And uh, that doesn't make what the president, how the president handled this okay or the right thing. But uh, there are reasons why the Democrats uh, are stubborn. And, uh, and I think, and, and, and over-stubborn. And it goes back, I think, to Newton and those kinds of people. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, well, we're going to go, we, we've gotten some good feedback about the last half hour kind of being open form. So we're going to do, again, we're going to try out the expanded version in this last 15 minutes of the show, the expanded version of Tell Me a Story, where we talk about any of the buzz, innuendo, shameless plugs that we want to put out there. Sometimes we scoop media, sometimes we don't, but it's always good discussion. Congressman Al, I want to start with you. Tell me a story. I, 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 I Would you like to pass? I, no, no, no. I'm just going to refrain until later. <laughs> okay, you have that privilege. You're right. Uh, Bob Hines, tell me a story. Spending. Uh, we have we have talked a little bit about the fact that there are three budgets out there: House budget, Senate budget, and the President's budget. And uh, I think it's fair to say that the President's budget is in between those two, what I would call extremes. Right. And it's interesting. I've got here a uh, from the uh, Wall Street Journal a little document. A little, it, it talks about where the, the taxes fall. And it shows that uh, it shows that they're fundamentally they're obviously there are there are taxes that are larger in the larger income levels, which is reasonable. But it also shows that in, in incomes as low as uh, as uh, less than twenty thousand dollars, there will be uh, an, on average a, uh, a tax of at least uh, uh, you know twenty five dollars more. It goes up as it, as it reads, and there's you know we're talking about taxes like cigarette taxes. We're talking about all kinds of you know uh, the uh, the chained uh, CPI and the rest of it. And what's important is I think that at least at least the president, <laughs> pardon me, <coughs> the president has not just said let's tax the rich. That's where that is not just where the money is. You've got to go well down the numbers because. The, the largest population areas are in the incomes, like from you know $100,000 up to 250000 That's the biggest population, and so when you tax them at a little a little bit, you can get a lot more money than you can when you try to squeeze the the, the fat guys who are off the. Hey 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 hey! Yeah, you know how I mean it. You know the guys with a lot of money. <laughs> Not the cute guys who run this program. Uh, exactly. But the point is, exactly. what's really important here is that I think the president is doing a pretty good job, beginning to do a good job of what has to be done if we're going to fix the deficit problem and get rid of it, and at the same time, raise enough revenue to pay for the government. And I would also just close the same one thing. There's a new version of uh, of Simpson Bowles or Bowles Simpson that came out. Uh, I think version uh, 4.0. Yeah, 4.0, and I think it's uh, it's a it's a it may be even a it, it appears to be even a better uh, approach than their original version, and I think a lot of people ought to be looking at it as we get closer and closer to the problems of 
the, the debt ceiling being raised when we know that there's going to be a huge fight about whether we raise the deficit. And if we do that, aren't we also going to deal with ex, you know, expenditures, revenues, and uh, entitlements? Interesting. Alan Moore, tell me a story. Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, reflecting on the fact that, that uh, in America, people who make mistakes uh, and have to step aside in disgrace may or may not have a, a, a second chance, a second time. Uh, there are some, and, and I'm thinking particularly about men who act badly. Um, and we've seen uh, some politicians, uh, <laughs> principally a former president of ours, who, who, who behave very badly, was able to survive it. And he was able to survive in, in a significant degree because, one, people kind of understood the nature of his bad behavior, and two, he had a wife who stood by him. We got two guys out there right now who are trying to make comebacks like party. this. One from each party, and but but in the case of Mark Sanford, the uh, the, the disgraced former congressman and governor of, of South Carolina, who lied about where he was, was said he was hiking and was with a girlfriend in Argentina. Very weird, crazy stuff. Although it's still, uh, you know, kind of in 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 some ways the the the, the man woman. Uh, Attraction. Uh, his problem, uh, not only in the lying and, and 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 the rest of it, but was his wife said, uh, "Sorry, Buster, we're done." Um, notwithstanding that, Sanford came back to try to reclaim his old House seat. He won a primary uh, and and won it reasonably well. Um, and then, for some reason, made a, a, a god awful mistake of bringing his Argentine girlfriend, now fiance to the victory celebration where for the first time one or two of Sanford's sons were actually meeting her in a very awkward and stupid move that offended a bunch of people. And then in in uh, uh, in addition to that, his wife is charged that he's been trespassing. trespassing into his house. He is in this old congressional district filled with his old friends, won the primary handily in a heavily Republican district and he will lose next week to Stephen Colbert's sister because his wife never got on board and because the behaviors didn't stop. In the case of Anthony Weiner, he has his wife behind him. He wants to be mayor of New York. He's running a, a decent second in the, among the Democrats. His problem is not that the wife isn't behind him. His problem is that the behavior he engaged in is outside of the mainstream, where he takes a picture of of his, of his package underneath his, his whitey, tidy whitey underpants and sends it out to strangers on the Internet. If he had had an affair with somebody that he had begged her forgiveness That would have been okay. That probably would have been okay, but his He'd behavior be Congress. was so bizarre that I'm not sure that's enough. But Sanford loses next week. Good call. We'll, we'll, we'll monitor that. Carl Tubin, tell me a quick story. I'm going to go back 150 years. Oh, God. Here we go. 151 years. <laughs> you were a kid. There was, you were only a kid then. Yeah. Where there was a shooting going on. At Fort Stevens, when the Confederate, a Confederate general got across the Potomac, came to Fort Stevens, and there was a battle there. And uh, uh, President Lincoln decided that he wanted to go out and watch the battle and see what was going on. And here he was in the fort, standing up, stove hat, etc., 
and it was a, a young uh, um, a young member of the Massachusetts Fed who looked up and, and looked at the president and said, get down, you damn fool, get down. <laughs> and that soldier was Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr., who became justice of the Supreme Court in later years. Wow, good story. Uh, my story is, uh, or go ahead, Congressman Al. You want the last word. Uh, no, no, Congressman Al, go ahead. I, I, I think that our whole system needs to be reformed, and I know that that is high in the sky and what have you, but things aren't working in this country. They're not working in the Senate. They're not working in the House. They're not working in the Congress. They're not working in the U.S. government. They're not working with the public. And I think some some uh, thought, maybe, maybe it's professors that need to do this. I don't know. But some thought needs to be given as to where our republic has kind of gone off the rails politically. And I have a lot of suggestions, and someday we may just do a program on that. Right, that'd be but, a good one. But I, but but I, I think that much of what we're wrestling with could be handled if we had different, if we handled them differently. And uh, I, I'll stop there because because if I continue, it will go on for an hour and a half. Ah. Well, that's actually not a bad idea. That, that's, a, that's a good one. That's a good one. Uh, my story is, in, 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 the, in the melee that happened last Thursday and into Friday, uh, and, the, and in the aftermath of Boston, what we, a, a lesser story, but still very important, was that, once again, contaminated letters with ricin were sent to various government officials, including one to the White House, which was intercepted at the White House mail facility in an undisclosed location, <coughs> and uh, one that was sent to Senator Wicker from Mississippi. Wicker. Two. Wicker from Three. Mississippi. Two letters. Two letters. Uh, it closed down uh, parts of Senate office buildings for a good amount of time. Uh, Senate staff were told to lock in place, and it, it, it struck me that we're living in a whole new world. We go back and we look at September 11th, now 12 years old, and we haven't had a major terrorist incident since then. We, we constantly become complacent. We need to remember that although we're not nearly the level as what residents of Tel Aviv have to deal with, what residents of London had to deal with during the IRA bombing site, we still, as a people, need to maintain vigilance. Now, today it was just announced that the federal government found a suspect in the Rice and Mailings case. They have since released him. It is something that we've got to maintain. This is why I am so pro-law enforcement, pro-criminal justice, pro-homeland security. This is a matter of public safety. Until we realize that there are people that want to do bad things to us as Americans, and we stop becoming complacent, we're going to continue to be vulnerable. And that is a bad, bad idea. We need to keep our eye on the ball on that. That's my story. Um, on behalf of Congressman Hal Swift, Bob Hines, Alan Moore, Carl Tubin, Denise Krepp, who's down in New Orleans, 
I'm your moderator, Justin Russell. Today's show was produced by our good friend, Alyssa Bonk. Good job, Alyssa. Thank you very much. This has been Backroom Politics, live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Bob? It's the place to be. It is. We'll be back next Tuesday with another live edition of Backroom Politics on Blog Talk Radio. Have a good week, everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you.